Lesson 11 for June 4 through to 10. Last Day Events. Sabbath afternoon, June 4. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons we've learned from studying the book of Matthew so far. And as he now talks to his disciples and those about him about what's about to come in their lives and in ours potentially eventually, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, that we may see for us today and for our families and those we associate with the meaning of what's happening in the world today. Bless us now as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's read that again, Matthew 23, verse 12. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The second coming of Jesus is the climax of the Christian faith. The first advent of Jesus and his death on the cross are the crucial precursors for the second coming. The second advent couldn't happen without the first, and the first is fruitless without the second. Both are inseparably linked, if not in time, yet in purpose, which is the redemption of humanity and the end of the great controversy. The first coming is over and done, complete and finished. We now longingly and eagerly await the second. This week, we will look at what is recorded in Matthew 23 with Jesus' final appeal to some of the Jewish leaders to repent and accept him, their only hope of salvation. Next, in Matthew 24, Jesus responded to questions about what events will unfold prior to his second coming. Here, Jesus presents a rather solemn picture, linking the destruction of Jerusalem with what will precede his return. And yet, no matter how hard things become, such as war, famine, betrayal, we are left with the promise of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, as it says in Matthew 24.30. In other words, despite the toils and sorrow, we do have every reason to rejoice. Sunday, June 5, Blind Guides It was Jesus himself who had led the children of Israel into Jerusalem with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. On eagles' wings he had carried them out of Egypt and brought them to himself, as it says in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Out of all nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In a sense, Jesus had proposed to Israel on a beautiful mountain called Sinai. Exodus 24 says that leaders and elders went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. They saw God and they ate and drank. That's from the NIV. Christ offered the cup of his covenant to Israel, like a man offering a cup to a woman whom he desires to marry and to give a wonderful future. Israel received the cup, 
and said, Yes, we want to live forever with you in the land of promise. Question. With this background in mind, read Matthew chapter 23. What is Jesus saying to the leaders of Israel? What warning is he giving? More important, what lessons can we draw for ourselves regarding the things he has specifically chided them for? How can we make sure that we don't become guilty of the same? Matthew 23, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven." And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for what is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23 was Jesus' final desperate plea for reconciliation with his beloved. But his beloved left him. He accepted her decision, and for the final time, he walked out of the house, the temple. Look, he said in verse 38, your house is left to you desolate. As Jesus left the temple, it became desolate, empty, abandoned, like the wilderness from which the Lord had first rescued them. A great transition in salvation history was about to take place, and these leaders, and those they would lead into deception, would miss it. Meanwhile, many others, Jews and some Gentiles, open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, would continue the great work and calling of Israel. They would become Abraham's true seed, and as it says in Galatians 3.29, and heirs according to the promise. We, too, today, are part of the same people with the same divine calling. Monday, June 6, Signs of the End To start, let's read John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If 
Any one serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If any one serves me, him, my father, will honour. As Jesus rebuked the specific Jewish leaders who rejected him, John records a fascinating request. Christ is told about Gentiles who want to see Jesus. Yet these Gentiles first make their request to Jews who are faithful to Jesus. Before long, something similar would happen on a much larger scale. While some Jews would reject Jesus, others would be the primary means through which many Gentiles would come to the knowledge of him. How fascinating that this request would come right after Jesus told the leaders that their house would be left desolate. Truly, the old would soon give way to the new, and to that which had always been God's intention. The salvation of the Gentiles, as well as the Jews. Question. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 14, what kind of picture does Jesus present? both of the faithful believers and for the world in general. Well, let's begin Matthew 24 at verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And he answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus gives this answer in response to the questions about the sign of his coming and the end of the world. From the Desire of Ages, page 628, we read, Jesus did not answer his disciples by taking up separately the destruction of Jerusalem and the great day of his coming. He mingled the description of these two events. Had he opened to his disciples future events as if he held them, they would have been unable to endure the sight. In mercy to them, he blended the description of the two great crises, leaving the disciples to study out the meaning for themselves. This entire discourse was given not for the disciples only, but for those who should live in the last scenes of this earth's history. End of quote. One thing is very clear in Jesus' answer. The events leading up to his return are not pretty. Jesus doesn't predict any earthly utopia or earthly millennial reign of peace. War, betrayal, natural disasters, a church facing persecution, false Christs and even false brethren. 
The most positive thing depicted here is the promise that the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, in verse 14. So to finish today, in Matthew 24:13, Jesus says that he who endures to the end shall be saved. What can you do to keep yourself spiritually strong amid trials that could easily wear you down and cause you to give up? We have seen this happen in others. Why must we not be foolish enough to think it couldn't happen to us as well? Tuesday, June 7, The Demise of Jerusalem Question. Read Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 22. What is Jesus talking about here? Again, what kind of picture does he present in response to the questions asked him? Matthew 24, beginning at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place... Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The abomination of desolation is generally understood as some kind of sacrilege or desecration of what is holy. Jesus is obviously talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which would come in AD 70. As we saw yesterday, Jesus mingled his description of this event with those surrounding the state of the world before his second coming. As Ellen White says in The Great Controversy, page 22, Christ saw in Jerusalem a symbol of the world hardened in unbelief and rebellion and hastening on to meet the retributive judgments of God. End of quote. Yet, even amid the desolation, the Lord seeks to save all who will be saved. In Luke, Jesus actually tells the disciples to flee before the abomination is set up. In chapter 21, beginning at verse 20, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment, in fulfilment of all that has been written. When Christians in Jerusalem saw this happen, they fled out of the city as Jesus instructed, whereas most of the Jews were left behind and perished. It is estimated that more than one million Jews perished during the siege of Jerusalem, with 97,000 more taken captive. As we read in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 499, However, during a temporary respite, when the Romans unexpectedly raised their siege of Jerusalem, all the Christians fled, and it is said that not one of them lost his life. 
Their place of retreat was Pella, a city in the foothills east of the Jordan River, about 17 miles south of the Lake of Galilee. End of quote. So to finish the day, think of a time when someone warned you about something and to your own later dismay you didn't listen. Why is it so crucial that, besides listening to the wonderful promises in God's Word, we also listen to its warnings? Wednesday, June 28, The Second Coming of Jesus Jesus' response here in Matthew 24 was in regard to the sign of your coming, verse 3, that is, of Christ's coming to reign. Question, what other warning does Jesus give in the context of events before his return, and how has this been seen through history? Matthew 24, verses 23 to 26. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Here's Jesus from a worldly perspective, nothing but an itinerant Galilean preacher, with a small following, yet he predicts that many will come in his name claiming to be him. Of course, that's exactly what has happened through the centuries and even into our day, a fact that gives us more powerful evidence for the truth of God's word. Question. Read Matthew 24, verses 27 to 31. How is the second coming described? And what happens when he comes? Matthew 24, beginning at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. After warning that many will come claiming to be Christ, Jesus then describes what his return will really be like. First, the second coming of Jesus is personal and literal. It is Jesus himself who is coming back to earth. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And that's a blatant refutation of those who claim that Christ's return is an ideal or simply a new era in human history. His return is going to be visible, like lightning across the sky. Every eye shall see him, it says in Revelations 1.7. The trumpet imagery reveals that it's going to be loud, loud enough even to wake the dead. And most important, if the first coming was one of humiliation... 
At the second, Jesus will come as a triumphant king, as we read in Revelation 19, verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He'll be victorious over all of his and our enemies, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And so to finish the day. At a time of so much turmoil and uncertainty in our world about the future, how can we learn to draw personal strength and hope from the promise of the second coming? Thursday, June 9, Keeping Watch The second coming of Jesus is the culmination of all Christian hopes. It is the fulfilment of all that we've been promised. Without it, what? We would rot in the ground after death just as everyone else does. Without the second coming and all that it entails, everything else about our faith becomes a lie, a farce, everything that the critics and opponents have claimed against us. No wonder, then, that in eager anticipation of his return, some Christians have set dates for his return. After all, so much hinges on that return. Of course, as we know, every past date set for the return of Christ has been wrong. Question. How does Matthew 24, verses 36 and 42 explain why date-setters get it wrong? Matthew 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Precisely because we don't know when Christ will return, we are told that we must be ready and that we must keep watch. Question. Matthew twenty four forty two to 51 What is Jesus saying here about what it means to keep watch and be ready for the second advent? Beginning at Matthew 24 and verse 42 Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is clear. We do not know when he is going to come back. In fact, he's coming when we don't expect him. 
So we need always to be ready for him when he does come back. We need to live as if he could come back any time, even if we don't know when. The thinking that, well, he isn't coming back for a long time, so I can do as my heart desires, is precisely the attitude that Jesus is warning against. We should seek to be faithful because we love the Lord and want to do what is right by him, regardless of when he returns. Besides, too, with all the texts that warn about judgment, especially against those who treat others badly, the timing of the second coming doesn't really matter. Sooner or later, judgment will come. And so to finish today, as Seventh-day Adventists who have long believed in Christ's return, how can we make sure we don't make the mistake, even if only in a subtle way, of this evil servant? Friday, June 10. In the context of the events in Matthew 24, Jesus also said, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass till all these things take place. That's Matthew 24:34. This text has led to confusion because, obviously, all these things didn't take place in a single temporal generation. Dr. Richard Lehman, writing in the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, says that the Greek word translated generation corresponds to the Hebrew word dor, that's d-o-r, which is often used to designate a group or class of people such as a stubborn and rebellious generation, like in Psalm 78 verse 8. Thus, Jesus was not using the word to depict time or dates, but to depict the class of evil people whom he had re been referring to. And so he writes, in harmony with this Old Testament usage, Jesus would have used the term this generation without a temporal meaning to refer to a class of people. The evil generation would include all who share evil characteristics, as depicted in these verses, Matthew 12.39, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in Matthew 16.4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. And in Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And that's from Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, published by the Review and Herald in 2000, and it's page 904. In other words, evil will remain until the end of time, until Jesus comes back. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, as Seventh-day Adventists, how do we deal with what seems like an apparent delay? Having previous generations of Adventists believed that Jesus would come back in their lifetimes? And don't many of us expect it in ours? 
At the same time, isn't expecting him to return during any given period a form of date-setting? How do we find the right balance in how we deal with the second coming? How do we avoid the attitude of the evil servant while at the same time avoiding that of those who see in every headline a sign of the imminent end? What should the attitude be among those of us who are waiting for the second coming? And question two, read again Jesus' description of what the second coming will be like. How does it differ from some of the popular conceptions of the second coming? Considering how clear the texts are, why do so many believe what is so contrary to the Scripture? What arguments do they bring up to defend their views, and how should we respond? And the third question, how do we learn to live with delay? What Bible characters had to live with delay, and what can we learn from them? For example, Joseph, Abraham and Sarah, Caleb and Joshua. Also, what does Revelation 6 verses 9 and 10 say about delay? Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Try Jesus Part 1 It was time for my children to arrive home from school and I went to wait for them on the veranda of our house in Sydney, Australia. Smiling, I watched Lauren, my seven-year-old daughter, stand on her tiptoes to lift the mail out of the mailbox as she did every day before coming up the driveway. A few seconds later, she was charging toward me, waving a small piece of paper above her head. Mummy! Mummy! This card says I can have a free Bible. May I fill it in, please? Please! I met the children at the door, and he walked into the house as Lauren excitedly read what the card says. See, Mummy, she said, proudly reciting the words. It says, Try Jesus on the front, and on the back there's a place to fill in our name and address. I was sceptical. Our family had never belonged to a church, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to give our address to strangers. But when I saw how eager Lauren was to have the free Bible, I decided to let her send in the card. We had lived in Sydney only a few weeks, and we hardly knew anyone in Australia. Our family had lived in South Africa until just a few months earlier, but when we saw the crime spiralling out of control, we agreed that we needed to start a new life. Somewhere else. We tried England, but it didn't work out, so we turned our hopes to Australia. My husband, Neil, applied for work at several places. Finally, we located a job in Sydney. So we packed our things, exchanged heart-wrenching goodbyes with our families and friends in South Africa, and started out on a new journey, a new life, on a new continent. Although we weren't Christians, I remember thinking that when both our house and business in South Africa sold quickly in an otherwise poor market, that someone or some power was directing our lives. 
We found a house in Sydney and enrolled the children in school. Everything seemed to be falling into place. But after the excitement of moving began to wear off and the pressures of everyday life in a new place surfaced, we felt homesick, sad and a little depressed. That was when Lauren found the Try Jesus card in the mailbox. She was so excited and eager to fill in our address on the card. How could I deny her wish? I wrote her address on a piece of paper and she carefully copied it onto the spaces on the card. And this story is to be continued after next week's lesson in our next Inside Story. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.